He's great, just hymns of the faith and so many focus on Christ and uh, of course every Sunday we, we want to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and through his word but it feels like today especially we just have so much coming at us. We in our Sunday school talked about various councils that were held to discuss the doctrine of the person of Christ and really uh, affirm what the scriptures teach um, when error was creeping up in history and then we have these uh, hymns that are very exalting the Lord Jesus. And then, of course, in our passage this morning, we are looking at that very question of questions, the most important question that you could ask, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, where we are in our study of the gospel of Luke. And we are... Um, really wrapping up, or we have wrapped up, Jesus' Galilean ministry, where he's been in kind of the north of Israel, in the Galilee region, ministering for, um, for quite some time. And then now we, we, we're moving closer to Jesus, um, journeying to Jerusalem. He's not headed that way yet, but we are nearing that, that point. We come to this very important section of Luke's gospel. And so we find ourselves this morning in Luke chapter 9, and specifically in verses 18 to 22. So follow along as I read the text that we will be studying this morning. Starting in verse 18 of Luke chapter 9. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This is the word of the living God. Well, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I asked this question last night to ChatGPT, which is an uh, artificial intelligence program on the computer that has gone through multiple iterations and will soon take over the world uh, and destroy us all humans, no, <laughs> only in science fiction. But uh, it is an AI-generated uh, program. And so uh, I asked the, the question to ChatGPT, who is Jesus? And here's the answer it gave me in about two seconds, okay? Quote, as an AI assistant, I can provide you with information about Jesus based on historical and religious context. Jesus, also known as Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth, is a central figure in Christianity. According to Christian beliefs, Jesus is considered the Son of God and the Messiah who came to earth to save humanity. He is believed to have been born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem Israel, around 2,000 years ago. Jesus is known for his teachings, miracles, and his crucifixion and resurrection, which are considered pivotal events in Christian theology. His teachings emphasize love, forgiveness, and the importance of faith. Okay, chat GPT. 
Okay. <laughs> you know, you do the man on the street thing and you go to someone and say, yeah, who's Jesus? Do you think they're going to give you that kind of answer? I don't know. Some of them would. Yeah, maybe not Gen Zers. I don't know. But, um, and, and so you have uh, an interesting, you know, of course, there's people who are uh, behind some of this as well, the, the uh, AI stuff. But uh, hey, that's, that's I'm pretty decent. Of course, it's trying to be non-biased, and this is the belief of Christians, but um, they got a lot in there. In fact, they got that he's the Messiah in here, which is like something that at the time of Jesus, people were, they didn't mention that in the options given, except Peter did. He's the Christ. Now, that's the question that a computer gave uh, to the question, who is Jesus? Listen to the answer given by the early church uh, distilled down, this is lots of thought, lots of men uh, thinking through this question and really giving us one of the, one of the best uh, descriptions of the person of Christ in what we call the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. And they came together after many prior councils had already articulated what the church has believed about the person of Christ from the scriptures. They had other councils that added on to this and Clarified because new heresies and uh, um, errant beliefs about Christ were being put forward, um, and they were combating that and saying, no, 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 that's not what the Bible teaches, and so they would clarify again what the Bible teaches. So here's what the Council of Chalcedon said. It's going to be a little different than chat GVT, okay, but listen to this. This is a little long, and there's going to be words in here I, I'm almost sure uh, that you will not know, but that's okay, and but they are trying to just really pack in tight uh, what the scriptures teach. And they're not even being exhaustive. There's more you could say about this. But listen to the, what, they, what they wrote. Quote, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, According to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us, end quote. Whoa, <laughs> that is a lot. That is like just dumping a truckload of truth upon you. And, and you think, well, that's so like specific and wordy and detailed. And it's like, exactly. Because they're, what they're, if you could walk through this passage, you would see as they have certain words here that are really particular, you could go, oh, they're combating this heresy. Boom, right there. And they have a different word. And it's like affirmations and denials. And so this is how the early church answered the question, who is Jesus? 
And they're primarily focused on the, what we call the deity and the humanity of Jesus. Deity referring to his godhood, that he is truly God, and his humanity referring to that he's truly man. And so they're, they're, that's what they're focused upon. And there's other things that they could talk about Jesus that they don't, but those are the focus there. Now, the, the real important question for you this morning is not what a computer-generated program says about Jesus or even necessarily what the Council of Chalcedon said about Jesus, though we believe that's accurate, the Council of Chalcedon at least, and, and faithful to Scripture. The real important question for you this morning is, who do you say that Jesus is? And when I say that, I don't mean like, your truth about Jesus and my truth about Jesus, uh, which is very common in our postmodern world, but rather, like, who do you affirm him to be? In other words, do you affirm him to be what the scriptures say he is? And do you worship him as such? That is the ultimate question. That is the question Jesus asks his disciples at this key, pivotal moment. This is the ultimate question, right? This is the ultimate question. You can be wrong about a lot of stuff in life, a lot of stuff. But you cannot be wrong here. You cannot get the question, who is Jesus, wrong. It has eternal ramifications for your life. Luke has been building up to this question. Who is this? Who is this man? Let me show you and just remind you how Luke has been getting us to this very moment, this very text. In chapter 7, verse 49, after that woman came to Jesus in that Pharisee's house while they were having dinner, and she comes up and she starts weeping, and she's wetting his feet with her tears, and she anoints his feet with ointment, and Jesus basically says that she has been forgiven. Her, she's trusted in, in Jesus, and she's been forgiven of her sins. And then listen what it says in verse 49. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? So people are asking, who is this? Who is this that can forgive sins? Chapter 8, verse 25. After Jesus calms the storm, on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are amazed at this. And in verse 25 of chapter 8, it says, He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Once again, Luke, putting before our minds, Who is this? Then again, in chapter 9, last week, we saw when Herod uh, and the people are kind of questioning who Jesus is, Herod is getting paranoid because he killed John the Baptist for calling him out on some of his sins. And, and so Herod thinks maybe Jesus is uh, uh, John the Baptist come back from the dead. I mean, he's, his sin is making him really paranoid. But notice how this section ends. Verse 9 of chapter 9, Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So look, look how, how Luke is setting us up for this. He keeps on putting in the mouth of people who actually said these things, but reminding his hearers in the way he structures his gospel, people continue to ask this question. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And Luke is writing to a man who's likely a Gentile and maybe the patron, the patron who is financing the book of Luke being written, possibly, Theophilus, and he is... Uh, trying to give him confidence in the things that happened ab uh, about, the, about the person and work of Christ. And so he wants Theophilus to ask this question and he wants other readers of his gospel to ask the question for themselves, 
Who is Jesus? And so he's, he's got us thinking about that. And so now he gets us to this pivotal moment where he's going to essentially answer that very question. Now you can summarize the study of Jesus Christ into two major categories. You can summarize the study of Jesus Christ into the category of the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. And those are pretty simple categories, but they contain quite a lot. The person of Christ refers to who he is, right? If I said like the person of Richie Setzer, right? You would, we would be talking about who is this man? Who, who is he, right? Uh, we get the person of Jesus, we're talking about who he is, his nature, his essence. When we talk about the work of Jesus Christ, we're talking about what he did, what he accomplished, what he performed, and what the scriptures emphasize in that regard. And so that's what we're talking about, these two uh, essential aspects of Jesus Christ. And that is essentially what we find in our text here. In these verses, we see first the person of Christ confessed, followed by Jesus' own explanation of the work that he must do, or that must be done to him, in fact. One writer put it this way, here is the apostle's final exam with only two questions. Who do the crowd say that I am and who do you say that I am? And that's really what we have in this passage. First, in verses 18 to 20, we have the person of Christ, who he is. Then in verses 21 and 22, the explanation of the work of Christ, of the Messiah. So we're going to see then two essential truths about Jesus that you must know and believe. Now, just to zoom out a little bit more to give you the flow of this, next week we're going to look at verses 23 to 27, which is really Jesus' demands for disciples. It shows the, the demands of discipleship. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, this is what it looks like. This is what it means to be a disciple. And I think these three sections flow together. You really have the declaration about Christ, that he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the, work, the person of Christ. Then you have the determination of Christ that he must uh, have these things happen to him. He must suffer. He must be rejected. He must die and be killed. And then he must be raised. This is the work of Christ. And then you could see the demands of Christ. In light of that, in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, this is what must be true in your life. And that's what verses 23 to 27 are. We'll look at that next week. But I just want you to see the flow of that. This is a, just a great passage that Luke has set up for us. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's done. Here's how you must respond in light of that, right? Sometimes we wonder, how do I respond to this? What am I supposed to do with this information? That's what you're supposed to do. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. So let's look at this passage together. And just, we have two points this morning. Two points. The person of Christ, the work of Christ. Let's first consider the person of Christ or the declaration about Christ in verses 18 and 19. Look again at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? Now in Luke, uh, if you just look, at the verses prior to this, you'll notice that what just happened in Luke is the feeding of the 5,000, which is more likely the feeding of the 15 to 20,000. It's just the 5,000 is referring just to the men alone. And so that's what we just read about, but that's not what just happened in like space-time history. Luke has a massive gap of events that he leaves out. 
Uh, the other gospels fill in those details, and you have to remember, the gospel writers have different purposes in writing. So some will skip over certain stories where others emphasize them because they have a particular purpose and agenda that they're writing. It's all true. They're just looking at it from different perspectives and emphasizing different things to teach theology. And so some call this the great omission of Luke because there's so much material that he leaves out here. So there's a massive gap between the feeding of the 5,000 and this event where Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. It's a gap of about six months of ministry. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. Uh, During those six months, what was Jesus doing? Well, the other gospels fill us in. He was traveling to various places in Gentile regions. So remember, he kind of does this culminating miracle of feeding the 5,000 in the Galilee region, and then he starts to go to Gentile areas, what's known as the Decapolis, a 10-city Gentile area. He goes to Tyre and Sidon and Arabia, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon. He's going to these different places. In fact, he even feeds uh, a a group of 4,000 men in a Gentile region. So you think about it like this. He does this twice. He does first for 5,000 men for Jews, then he does feeding the 4,000 men for Gentiles. So showing that he is a savior for both Jews and Gentiles. So he does that. He's going around doing these different things. He comes back to, uh, to the region of uh, Israel and the, um, the Jewish area, and he's rejected again. And so then he leaves for a place that Luke doesn't tell us the name of the place, but this is where they are. Matthew and Mark tell us where the specific place is. It's called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. You can hear the word Caesar in that, and you can hear the word Philip in that, and that's exactly what it's named for. Um, Herod Philip, and then Caesar. You know, maybe he was like, okay, I want to name this after myself, but uh, the emperor, I got to, okay, throw the emperor's name in there, (laughs) right? You'll know that there's another place, or maybe you do, another place called Caesarea Maritime, or Maritima. That's on the coast, right there on the coast. That's a different place. Um, It's a pretty cool place. It's got a hippodrome with like where the horses would race, but that's not this place. Uh, This is Caesarea Philippi. This is in the north. Um, This is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, Today, it's known as Banyas. You can visit it. It's really beautiful. It's near Dan, right? Remember the 12 uh, sections of the tribes? It's near Dan. And uh, there was a, a pagan altar in this, uh, in this region that uh, was for the god uh, Panius or Pan. He was a half man, half goat. <laughs> Interesting. They love the halves. Uh, and uh, th- th- there was various gods worshipped here. And so... Um, it is really at this time outside of Israel. Probably during the time of David and Solomon, they had this part of Israel. But during this time, it's really not part of Israel. So they're like on a retreat, right? They're, Jesus and the disciples are on a retreat. And they're in a place of really strategic location for what's going to be said here. Because this is where pagan gods are worshipped as the way to God. And it is here that Jesus asked the question of who people say that he is and who they say that he is. And in other words, like, there's the the imagery is great. Among the competing worldviews about how to get to God, Jesus is saying, who do you say that I am? And this is really emphasizing that Jesus is the only way. So they're at this strategic location, Caesarea Philippi, in the north, and... They've done lots of ministry. This is kind of on the, the back end of Jesus' ministry. He's getting closer and closer to his death and resurrection. 
And so he asks his disciples, after seeing so much of his ministry, that he asks them who he is and who the crowds say he is. Now, but before he does that, it says that he prays. No, look at what it says. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, so Jesus is with the 12, but he's praying, and we ask, well, what is he praying? Well, we don't get, have a transcript of what he prayed, but we can infer he prays at key moments in his life recorded in Luke, and it's, it's not outside the realm of possibility that he's praying for the disciples as he's about to ask them this pivotal question. It's no coincidence that he prays right before this. And then he asks them, and Peter gives the right answer. And in Matthew's account, Matthew says, he records that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. And so, like, maybe Jesus is praying, like, Father, help them get it. Help Peter get it. And then Peter gets it. Uh, That's possible. We don't know that. But is this not a model for you? That as you are going to talk to other people, you should pray uh, before you talk to them. It's been said that you should talk to God about men before you talk to men about God. (laughs) You say that again, right? So you should talk to God in prayer about men and women before you go and talk to men and women about God. Because it will prepare your heart and it will prepare their heart for what you're going to speak to them. And so Jesus is praying And having prayed, he asked them what the popular opinion is about him. What do the polls say? You know, we're familiar with polls. And uh, where do the polls stand with Jesus? What are they saying about him? And they give a number of examples. Now, these are not exhaustive because you know that the religious leaders are saying that he's demon-possessed. And they don't say that. They're just leaving that out. But these are kind of, if you were to ask people on the street and poll people, this is kind of the general consensus of what most people are saying about Jesus. And so look at verse 19. And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Now, these are the kind of answers that are being given. And notice that these are the same three answers that were given to Herod in chapter 9, verse 7. It's the same chapter. So just look at verse 7. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. I mean, it's like the same thing. And so that's what was being told to Herod. This is what the disciples recount. This is just very common belief about Jesus during this time. So let's just take these briefly one by one here. John the Baptist. Why in the world would you suggest John? I mean, John baptized Jesus. I mean, they're both there. So how are they the same person, right? But here's the paranoia that Herod had. Herod had John beheaded. And, you know, like we said, sin makes you paranoid. You know, you just think things that, uh, you just think everyone's after you and they're not. And, And so Herod, likely convicted by his sin, he hears about this person who has the exact same message as Jesus and is doing these incredible works. And he's thinking, maybe, maybe John's back from the dead and he's going to get me. You know, it's like, so that's what he thinks. So some people are thinking that. John was a prophet. And, and so there's, there's going to be a commonality notice here of each of these relates to Jesus being a prophet. So that's John the Baptist. Not that. Uh, Elijah, someone's saying Elijah. He's also a major prophet in the Old Testament. But why connect Jesus to Elijah? Why why would you go there? Well, because there was a, well, not only that, but um, there were a lot of similarities between 
works Jesus did and works that Elijah did. We've seen that. And, it's, and Elisha as well, the one who came after Elijah. And they, they do a lot of similar works. Now, Jesus' uh, works are greater than those prophets, but there's intentional similarity. And Luke has pointed out a number of those to us already through allusions. But there's a prophecy in the end of Malachi, which in our English Bible is the last book, and it really says that before the Messiah comes and before the great and uh, power, uh, glorious day of the Lord, there will be one like Elijah. Elijah will come. And so they're thinking, oh, maybe this is Elijah. And there, there's this messianic expectation. And so they're thinking, maybe this is the guy who comes before the, the Messiah does. So that's how they're thinking, some of them. Then others are saying, well, just one of the prophets in general, one of the prophets of old has risen. In Matthew, Jeremiah is suggested. Uh, now, we know it's not any of these. In fact, we're going to see in two weeks, I think, the transfiguration. And Jesus is on the mountain, and Moses and Elijah appear. And so, it's not, Jesus is not Moses or Elijah, because they're there with him. And, and uh, the father gives his pronouncement that this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So, what is this, the major, one of the prophets that has arisen? Well, there's a significant prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. In Deuteronomy 18, that... Uh, the Messiah, this figure, would be a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18.15, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And at the end of uh, chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, Moses says that prophet has not yet arisen. Not yet arisen. So he's saying, look forward. Look forward to that prophet. And of course, Jesus, similar to Moses, goes up on a mountain, and then he comes down from a mountain with a law, just like Moses. And just like Moses said, blessed and curses, Jesus comes down and he says, blessed. And he gives a sermon. And so there's a lot of similarities with, with Moses and Jesus. Um, and so there's this anticipation. Is he one of the prophets? They're trying to piece it together. But notice that all three of these have to do with somehow Jesus being a prophet. That's their, that's their best guess. Interestingly enough, in the major views of people, no one says that he's the Messiah. They say he's a prophet of some kind, but not that he's the Messiah. Now, to be sure, there was a remnant of believers who do recognize like Simeon and Anna in the temple when Jesus is a baby and, 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 and little, they're, they're going, oh, this is it. This is the, the son of David. This is the Messiah. And, and they get it. That's a very small minority though. This is the, this is the crowds. This is the populace. What are they saying? What's trending, right, uh, on social media about Jesus? And this is what's trending. This is what they're saying about people. You know, th social media is a bad place to do theology in general. <laughs> and so uh, th Jesus asked them, what, what is being said about me? Now, they have a lopsided view of the Messiah, and so this is partly why they, they don't see Jesus as the Messiah. They don't think to go there. But this is the people's view in the day. And most people, as we see, had his real identity wrong. It's like, are they right that he's like a prophet? Yes, yeah. But, and that he is the prophet to come? Yes, but th it's more than that. Now, we could fast forward today and go, because this issue is not really that different, because people get Jesus wrong all the time today. You know, who do people say Jesus is today? If we were to think about that. And there's a lot of answers to that question. You know, you know the academic world, and some will just deny that he even existed. You know, uh, or they'll say, oh, well, the disciples elaborated a lot of stuff. They made up a lot of stuff about Jesus. Or you have uh, Islam will say that he's just a prophet of God. That sounds familiar, right? He's not God. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, that he's not truly God or truly God. He's, he's uh, a God of some sort. 
but, or some people will just say, you know, oh, he's a good teacher, he's good lessons, you know, good, someone good, moral teacher, things like that. You know, C.S. Lewis uh, has given us a gift in trying to categorize the illogical nature of reading the Bible and then trying to say something good about Jesus while denying that he's really God. And he really gave us these three categories that you really only have three options when it comes to Jesus. That you, you can either say that he was a liar, he just lied to people, so that's not a good person, okay? <laughs> or he was a lunatic, he was a madman, he was crazy because he thought he was God and he told people that, but that's also not someone you want to follow. Or that he really is Lord, he really is God. And here's, here's his quote, you know, I'll just give you the quote of what Lewis said. Uh, he said this, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a, good, more, a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, end quote. And then Lewis continues. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man, uh, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option to us, that left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's good. That's good logic, right? So you got to just deal with it, you know, and this is good just to bring up with people as you talk to them and you say, what do you think about Jesus? That's a great opener. You know, like, what do you think about Jesus? And it's very polarizing, definitely, but you, you got to have this in your mind and think, okay, whatever they say, I've got to press them on this, that you got to make this choice. You, you don't have the option to just say, oh yeah, good, good teacher, but, but not God. I'm not going to follow him. Well, listen to Peter's response. People in, in Jesus' day were confused. People today are confused about Jesus. But listen to Peter's response. Look at verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. Now, the, the you here, who do you say that I am? It's, it's emphatic. It's emphatic here. This is their final exam. You must put an answer down. And Peter's right. He's, I mean, Peter always speaks up for the apostles, for the 12. You gotta love him. This is the, one of the times he's like, he's dead on. He's right. Of course, in Matthew and Mark, they're going to tell us that just after this, like just after this, he pulls Jesus aside when Jesus tells him that he's going to suffer and die. And he's like, Lord, you're not going to die. Look, I'm going to stand in the place. I'm going to, that's not going to happen. He's like, get behind me, Satan. And all the other disciples hear it. And they're like, Peter, dude, you were like on the mountaintop. You aced the exam. And then you didn't put your name on it. And you failed the whole thing. It's like, what, it's like, what happened? <laughs> and so we see that he gets it correct here. Notice that it just it's simple, it's clear, it's profound. Now, you, the, the gospel writers are emphasizing different things. Matthew has the longest statement. It's, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Mark has a shorter statement, you are the Christ. And Luke's is kind of in between, you are the Christ of God. You put them all together and you have, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so... Here we have Luke focusing here on that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ of God. 
It was not that common, not common for the people to refer to Jesus as the Messiah at this point. There's a few times it happens, but it's usually in the back room, you know, and this is not something that's being proclaimed openly yet. Now, what does Christ mean? Christ is not Jesus' last name, you know, Mr. Christ, right? We know that. It's a title. It's not a last name. And so Christ means uh, Messiah, really, anointed one. An anointed one, anointing with oil, was what was done for the leaders in Israel's society, you know, prophets, priests, kings. And so there's a lot packed into this term, Christ or Messiah. Now, I don't know if you've ever ordered one of these uh, beds before, but you can order these beds that are just like packed super tight and they have no oxygen in them or very little, right? And they're sealed closed with uh, wrapping and you're supposed to, you know, you can lift them, they're lighter, you can get them into your room and then you cut it open, cut the plastic open and the air just starts filling up the, the mattress and it's like, and it just starts growing and then it's a bed and you're like, whoa, how did they do that? <laughs> and, and there's just so much packed into this term that it's like, you could just be like, oh yeah, you're the Christ of God. And it's like this little small statement, but then you just start to unpack it, air fills up, and you're going, there's just so much here, and this is where I'm, you know, very dangerous of, like, going off onto all these things, and it's just going to fill, fill our minds up, and you're going to use up all the time, and so we have to be careful about how much time we spend on this, because this is such a huge concept of the Messiah. Here's simplified what we're talking about here. The Messiah deals with the person who would be the fulfillment of the prophets, of the priesthood, and of the king, of the kingdom. Messiah brings, like, Messiah brings everything God has promised to pass. Everything God wants to do in this world, he does it through his Messiah, through this man, through this individual, to restore the physical creation, to restore man to God, to restore men to men, and, and, uh, and mankind to mankind, and, and all of these things. He's going to do it through this man. And through scripture, you get more and more detail revealed. You don't get it all at once. You get it little by little, just like the air fills up, and it gets bigger and bigger. So this concept continues to expand through scripture as you get like the little bit in the beginning, and then more and more truth, more and more truth. And by the time of the New Testament, you have a ton of information about the Messiah. And so, this is essentially what's encapsulated in this term. Being the Messiah of God means that he does only what God can accomplish. He brings everything to pass in God's plans. And so, this starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sin and the curse upon the creation comes, man is separated from God. God makes a promise and he says in Genesis 3.15, speaking to the serpent who's uh, embodied by Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So between the serpent and and Eve, then between your offspring and her offspring, so the, the group that follows God, really, the, the, the holy seed, the holy offspring, and those who follow Satan, uh, they will be opposed to one another. And then a third group, he shall bruise, he, where did that come from, right? The only other he in existence is Adam, and it can't be Adam, he's disqualified. So there's another Adam figure who's gonna come in the future. He shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. So just notice here, there's some kind of suffering built in already to what's gonna happen to this second Adam figure, but we don't know much. We don't know much about it, but he's gonna defeat the work of Satan. So this is like the first 
acorn level. This is like the, this is the package with all the wrapping around it, right? And then it gets cut here. And then it starts to expand. And you see at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49, and we're skipping a lot because it, it narrows down to a man named Abraham and the nation God's going to bring through him, Israel, and his sons, uh, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And then Judah is one of those children and the Messiah is going to come through his line. And here's what it says about that in Genesis 49.10. The scepter, that's like a, what a king has, shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So the peoples, the nations, are, they're going to obey this one, this king, this ruler. And they're going to bring things to him in worship. And then here's what he'll do. He'll bring a rejuvenated creation about, binding his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. He's going to bring such prosperity to the earth. He's going to turn back the curse upon the creation. So we're getting more about what this figure will do. And it just continues on from there. We're going to skip a ton, but I want you to notice something. 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are one book. It just, you know, couldn't fit on one scroll. Uh, so Samuel, right, begin and end with an emphasis on the anointed. So look at chapter one, or sorry, chapter two of 1 Samuel. Chapter, 1 Samuel so this is the book of Samuel, right? Uh, the beginning, 1 Samuel 2, in Hannah's prayer, verse 10, here's what we read. 1 Samuel 2, 10. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. That phrase, ends of the earth, is really important for the Messiah. He will give strength to his king, right? Remember, scepter was mentioned in Genesis 49. Now it's explicit, he's a king and exalt the power, or it's like the idea is the horn of his anointed. And that word anointed is where we get our word Messiah from. So his anointed, his Messiah. Then at the end of 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, the guys, you know, we went through this in the guys, so the guys are just nodding their head. They're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, tell them, tell them, this is great, you know. <laughs> uh, so they know. Um, 2 Samuel 22 verse 51. This is the end of Samuel so it's like bracketing the book, and we read this. David speaking. He's recognizing David is the one who's given the Davidic covenant. And we read in verse 51 of chapter 22, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, his Messiah, to David and his offspring forever. And so what does Samuel talk about? It talks about how God establishes a promise of a kingdom for David. So now it's narrowed down through David. It's going to be a, 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 an offspring of David. Psalm 89 is really an exposition of the uh, Davidic covenant. Verse 20 speaks about the anointed one, the Messiah there as well. And so as you kind of piece these things together throughout the Old Testament, what you learn is the Messiah will be uh, the coming prophet like Moses, he will be the great priest over his people to intercede for them, and he will be king. He will be king. He will sit on the throne of David. Of course, we see this in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 brings a lot of this together. We see him as priest and king. In Psalm 110, it says, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Ah, scepter. We remember that from Genesis 49.10. That's what a king does. Rule in the midst of your enemies. That's what Adam was supposed to do, uh, but not among enemies yet. But your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. That sounds like the obedience of the peoples, Genesis 49.10. And they will offer their, um, themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. There's priest idea. After the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings uh, on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. That's an unfortunate translation. It's really, he will shatter the head. He will shatter the head over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is a connection to Genesis 3.15. He will crush the head of the serpent. This is the one. And so throughout scripture, you're building, 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 building on this concept, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's who the Messiah would be, the coming prophet, priest, and king. He would be the new Adam, the ultimate Israelite. He would be the new David. What would the Messiah do? Well, he would unite Israel and Judah. He would establish Jerusalem as the capital of the world. He would regather God's people in a second exodus, greater than the first. He would bring world peace. He would restore the creation. He would reign from David's throne. And he would build the temple. And Peter gets it. He's like, yeah, you're the Christ. <laughs> and, and Jesus is like, Peter, the only reason you got this is because the Father in heaven let you see it. Make, connect the dots. And it made sense. Peter knew his Old Testament. Jesus is truly the Messiah. This is who he is. Now, the important question for you is the same as the disciples. Who do you say that Jesus is? And like we said, you don't determine who Jesus is. You accept who Jesus is for who he said he is. The truth about Jesus is not determined by popular opinion or by the masses. You know, sometimes people dismiss truth with an argument like this. Well, there's just so many views out there. And so, well, we just can't really know. No, there is a right view. <laughs> and there were a lot of opinions that were wrong in Jesus' day, and there's a lot of opinions in our day that are wrong as well. You can't just dismiss the truth that way. Well, some scholars say, many scholars say this, you know, and they're on the History Channel, so they must be right. <laughs> At Easter and Christmas, every year. Well, Jesus to me is, you know, it's like, no, we don't care what Jesus is to you. What does the Bible say about him? And so the Messiah is, is the one who will bring all of God's promises and purposes to pass for the world. But it's not only the person of Christ, but the work of Christ that explains how you can be saved from your sins and the wrath of God, right? I mean, Jesus is glorious and to be worshiped and honored, but if all we had was the revelation of who Jesus is, we would be lost in our sins, right? He will be who he will be regardless of whether he saves us or not. We need to know about the work of Christ. Christ has to accomplish his because of his person, he is qualified to do what he did to save us from our sins. And so just knowing who Jesus is is really not enough. You also have to know what Jesus did. You have to know the work of Christ. And so the Messiah will bring all of God's promises and purposes to pass, but how does he do this? How does he make it happen? How does he bring us back to Eden? 
and in right relationship with God and with the creation. And this is what Jesus is going to explain in verses 21 and 22. The way to bring all this about is through suffering and rejection. That's how it happens. That's how God is deemed to fix the world and fix our relationship with God. And so we move now to the work of Christ. Second truth, you must know and believe about Christ. Not only the person of Christ and who he is, but the work of Christ, what he has done. And and this we could call as well the determination for Christ. This is what must happen. Luke does not include the private discussion with Peter. That's Uh, He doesn't have that purpose to trace that rabbit trail. And so he goes right in verse 21 to what Jesus says. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. This word strictly charged, it it can be translated as warned them or some say rebuked them. (laughs) Uh, Forcefully commanded is probably a good way to think about it. Why would he command silence about this? And the silence, to be sure, is specifically related to Jesus being the Messiah. Hey, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. He strictly commands them. Don't you tell anyone. What? This is like Clark Kent asking someone, hey, who do people say that I am? And they're like, well, you're a guy from Kansas. You work at the Daily Planet as a reporter. You're a pretty nice guy, you know, a little awkward, you know. And then he said, but who do you say I am? You're like, well, I've been watching you. I think you're Superman. And you're like, He's like, okay, yeah, I am, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> You're like, what? How am I supposed to keep the secret? It's like, <laughs> this would be a hard secret to keep. What? All of, the, all of the Old Testament has been pointing to this moment, and you are the guy? We've, we know you're the Messiah, and we can't tell anyone? I mean, they know Jesus' alter ego here, but he's like, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. At least for now. At least for now, of course, they're going to tell people, but right now, you can't tell anyone. Now, why? why? Why can't they tell anyone? They don't know enough yet. They don't, they'd have a half message right now. This is why they can't tell. Have you ever given your kids like a, an instruction or a command? You're like, okay, listen to me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to, and you just say the first thing, and they just start running. They start to go do it, and you're like, wait a minute. I haven't told you everything yet, uh, and, and you, they don't have full instructions yet, and so you're like, hey, don't go run and do this yet. You need the whole information because I don't want you to do it wrong, and that's the is- issue with the disciples here. They have a true conception of the Messiah, but not a complete conception of who the Messiah is and what he will do. And so he doesn't want them going out and telling people, the Messiah is here! Because after Jesus uh, feeds the 5,000, in John 6, it says the people wanted to make him king. They wanted to forcefully make him king. And we're like, we're going to take out the Romans! You're like, pitchforks and everything. They're like, yeah! And that is not what Jesus came to do in his first coming. And so they need to hold back and wait and be instructed more. Here's what Daryl Bach writes. Quote, The disciples need instruction on the kind of Messiah that Jesus will be and what is in store for those who follow him in his journey of rejection, exaltation, and glory. God's plan for the Messiah is contrary to the disciples' expectations about Messiah. Now, I know we're preaching Luke's gospel, but Mark has a very interesting tactic. And he's similar to Luke in that he makes this a pivotal turning point in his gospel about um, about this question being spoken by Jesus, asked by Jesus, and then uh, the answer given by Peter. But right before this interaction, Mark tells a very interesting miracle. He tells a miracle of a man who was blind, 
And Jesus comes and he heals the man, but not all the way. He partially heals him. He like partially restores his sight. And, and the man says, when he's partially healed of his blindness, he's completely blind, he's partially healed, and he says this. This is a great statement. I love it. He says, I see men like trees walking. <laughs> now, if you were a blind person and you got sight, maybe that's how you would describe getting some vision back. You're like, there's these objects moving, and they're like, they're like trees, you know? I know what trees are. I've felt them before, but they're, they're, men are like trees moving. They're blurry. They're like these big trees. There's not a lot of shape to them. So it's not fully. And you think, then after that, he heals him the rest of the way in like a matter of minutes, right? And then he's completely restored. And you're like, why in the world would Jesus do that? It's the only time Jesus does this. It's the only time he doesn't completely heal someone in an instant. When he does this half measure, half and half, right? But all really close to each other. So why does he do that? Mark puts it right before this interchange. And here's why. Because this is the perfect illustration of what the disciples are like. They're like blind people who have come to see clearly, or sorry, come to see partially who Jesus is. Like, you are the Christ. And they are seeing Jesus like a man like a tree <laughs> moving around. They don't have the full picture. They, don't, they haven't turned the lens a little bit to get clarity with your binoculars. And so what he says is, hey, don't go yet and tell everyone your blurry vision of the Messiah. You need more clarity. And so then he tells them what must happen for the Messiah. And then they get more clarity. And what happens after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus? Oh, they got clarity. They, their eyes are fully open. And they're just preaching. The Christ has come. The Messiah is here. And you rejected him. You killed him. And you need to repent. And that's what's happening. And so the miracle is a perfect picture of the disciples. They have a blurry vision of Messiah, but they're getting more clarity, but more clarity is going to have to come. And so that's why Jesus tells them, hey, don't tell anyone yet. You don't have the full picture yet. You need to wait. And here's what he says that they're missing in their understanding of Messiah. Look at verse 22. Jesus saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, this is the first just open, plain, explicit prediction of Jesus' death by himself. He'll do it more, than, more times than this uh, in the future. But this is the first time he's just very explicit, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised. And notice the word must. Luke really likes this word. It's a word of necessity. It has to happen. He uses it in volume one in Luke and he uses it in volume two in the book of Acts. It speaks of what has been determined by God. It is necessary. Why is this necessary? Well, maybe two reasons. First, because this is what God had promised and predicted about the Messiah in the Old Testament. So God's faithfulness is on the line. It must happen this way. But also because this is what justice demands. If sinful human beings who've rebelled against their creator are going to be right with God and have the righteousness they need, then Christ must die as a substitute for sinners and be raised from the dead. It, it can only happen this way. Only this person can do it, and he, he can only do it this way. And so, that is why this is necessary. And notice, before we look at what must happen to the Messiah, notice the way he refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. 
This is another black hole of, you know, just you could go off forever into this. But son of man is an Old Testament concept that is really articulated most clearly in Daniel chapter 7. And it is a very messianic figure. It is one who will rule in the end uh, on God's throne and displace every other government and rule. He will be a second Adam figure. And his people, his saints will rule with him. And so we have this messianic title that Jesus loves to use for himself. And really, Jesus is really the only one who uses it. Uh, other people are not saying this about Jesus. Uh, sometimes you'll, you'll have a demon that says it because they know, the, they know the, the real story, what's happening. But, but Jesus reserves this for himself. It's his favorite title for himself. So he says, the son of man must. This is what must happen. What, what else, we might say, did the Old Testament predict about the Messiah? We, we listed a number of things, and that was in the minds of Peter and the apostles. But what else did they miss? And there are really four statements that Jesus gives. First, he must suffer. He must suffer. That's what he says. The son of man must suffer. Now, we already saw this. Remember in seed form, uh, Genesis 3.15, the serpent will bruise his heel. So there's like something with suffering there. Chapter 22 of Psalm, Psalm 22, we read about the Messiah suffering and the son of David and uh, he is going to be rejected and suffer many things at the hands of men. Uh, we read verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh God, oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. By night I find no rest. He says, verse six, but I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. The, they open wide their mouths at me like a, rav, a ravening and roaring lion, poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And so here's the Messiah suffering as David is predicting that. Isaiah 53, another great passage that we've studied before where Isaiah predicts the suffering servant who is the Messiah who will suffer for his people. He will be uh, rejected by his people as well. And so we see that he must suffer. He must suffer many things. And then he must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. Isaiah 53 explains that as well. Isaiah 53 verse three says, he was despised and rejected by men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Like, so this wasn't something new that Jesus is saying, okay, I'm, this was never revealed before. These are all things that the Old Testament predicted, but that many people overlooked. They couldn't put them together. They're like, how do these two puzzle pieces fit? Suffering and sovereign reigning over all things. Ah. And, and so here's a clear, explicit reference to their rejection. Another is in Psalm 118. We actually studied this psalm as well. So go back in the archives, find it, listen to it, you know, if you forget. Psalm 118 says this in 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. And so the rejection of the Messiah was predicted by the leadership. And this makes up the ruling body of Judaism, this scribes, elders, chief priests, 
sort of rejected is, is kind of a technical term for after careful scrutiny, legal scrutiny, whether an, a candidate was qualified for an office, you would you'd say, no, he's not qualified, rejection. You know, or think about like evaluating a counterfeit bill, like looking carefully, you know, eh, no, this isn't it. And that's what they did with Jesus. They carefully evaluated him and their conclusion was, oh, he's from Satan. He's demon possessed. We reject him. And that's what the Old Testament predicted. They, they utterly rejected him. How sad would it be for you to spend your whole life hearing and studying about Jesus only to reject him for who he really is? To know so much and yet write him off. Well, he must be rejected. He must be killed. We read about that in Isaiah 53, verse 8, that he will be cut off, it says. He'll be cut off from the land of the living. A clear reference to his death, again, in Daniel chapter 9. You know, Daniel chapter 9, is, it gives you goosebumps. It's a, little, it's a little like, whoa, this is crazy. Daniel predicts from this decree that's found in Nehemiah chapter 2 till what's arguably the... the time when Jesus walks into Jerusalem and the triumphal entry to the day when the Messiah would appear. He gave them a countdown clock, just turned it over, and the sand starts trickling through. And he says this in Daniel chapter 9. There's a lot of calculus you got to do to figure it out, but uh, we don't have time. But notice what he says in Daniel 9, 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, that's the word Messiah, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, same language as Isaiah 53, and shall have nothing. Here it predicts clearly the death of the Messiah. And not only the death of the Messiah, but tells us, like, here's the time frame. Here's the time frame for Israel. So they're saying, your Messiah's gonna come in this very time frame. You got a window, okay? And really, if you study the passage out, the terminus is 70 AD. You can't have it be past 70 AD. Now, do we live past 70 AD? Oh yeah, you bet. So the Messiah had to come before 70 AD and he had to be cut off before that. So who are the candidates for Messiah that meet the Old Testament scriptures and fit this time frame? Only one. Only one, only Jesus. And so he's come and he must be killed. It, it was all predicted. And then he must be raised on the third day. And you're like, did the Old Testament predict the Messiah would be raised? Oh, you bet. Come on. This is the best part. Chapter 16, Psalm 16, David writing. He says this in Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, or let your holy one see corruption. This word holy one, it's a messianic term. He, he's not referring to himself here. He's referring to the Messiah, the one who comes after him. You're not going to abandon me to Sheol, God, but you won't let your holy one, your Messiah, see corruption. Why? Because you're going to raise him from the dead. And that's how, that's how the New Testament writers interpret this passage. They understood it as David understood it. Interestingly enough, there's a passage in Hosea um, which, which speaks about Israel's future resurrection as a nation. And you remember that the king and the people have this kind of solidarity between one another. So what happens to one happens to the other. And there's a lot of connections there. Remember, Israel goes into the wilderness, Jesus goes into the wilderness. David, the king, goes into the wilderness, and so does Jesus, the king. They have all these parallels. But notice what we find in Hosea chapter 6 when it speaks about Israel's future restoration. In Hosea 6.1, it says, Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. 
After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Whoa. <laughs> so what happens to the nation in the future, raised on the third day, the Messiah will have happened to him as well. And of course, Jonah becomes the, the image of that, the type of that, in that Jonah is three days and three uh, nights in the belly of the fish to be a testimony to those he witnesses to that he is truly a prophet from God. So Jesus will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, Jesus says. The sign of Jonah shows the three-day nature of this prediction. And so, Jesus in Luke chapter four, sorry, Luke chapter nine explains to us what kind of a Messiah he will be. He rightly orders their expectations for the Messiah. It's hard for them to grasp at this moment, but it will become clear. And so first we've seen who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. What will this Messiah do? He will suffer. He will be rejected. He will die, but then he will raise again. This was God's plan. And as time went on, they would understand more and more about this. And one day they would begin to proclaim it openly when it became fully clear to them. How does all this suffering and rejection and death and resurrection accomplish and bring about God's plans and promises that the Messiah would do? Well, Jesus is going to further explain all that in the rest of Luke. In Luke 9 to 19, he's really going to articulate how does this death and suffering accomplish all the other stuff that God promised about the Messiah? He's not saying he's not going to do those things. He's saying, no, this is how it happens. This is how I do that. This has to happen first. This is the order. The cross must precede the crown. The suffering comes before the sovereignty. Death before the Davidic throne. Redemption before reigning. And he wants to explain this to them. So, who do you say that he is? And what response does this bring in your life? Well, Jesus is going to tell us next week what, what the response ought to be in our lives. A life of discipleship, a life of following Christ, a, of repenting of sin and trusting in him alone for our only hope for salvation and life. When you see that everything hangs on this man to restore all of creation and set everything right, you're like, what other option is there but to follow this one? I mean, he, he's the linchpin to everything in the world. Who is Jesus? He is the seed of the woman. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the suffering servant. He's the sinless substitute. He's the sovereign over all. He's the savior of the world. That's the most important question you could ask and answer correctly for yourself. And it demands a life of discipleship to Christ. And so, who is Jesus? He is the Messiah, truly God, truly man, to restore all that God has promised to restore. What must he do? He must die as a substitute for sinners. He must be raised again as a first fruits of our resurrection. And so how must we respond? We must respond in verses 23 and following. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Forever is ashamed of me and of my words. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious 
passage that highlights for us who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we stand on the other side of the cross and of the resurrection with great hope and confidence in your plans, with greater clarity. We don't see blurry, but we have great clarity from your word, seeing it having been accomplished. And may that give us even more confidence in your plans for the world, for all of creation, for our lives individually, for your church. Lord, as the world goes crazy in so many ways, we have confidence, we have stability, we know where this heads. We know that the world has been promised to Jesus, the Messiah, who will rule over all, and we will rule with him as, as your saints because you have saved us by faith alone in Christ alone. We give you thanks, Lord, and we worship you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's